0: We've trained our agencies to work against us, and the pitch meeting is the culprit. The pitch meeting is when an agency comes to their client, or their client comes to them, and they present the creative that they've prepared. It may be well-researched creative, based on data, both qualitative and quantitative. During the pitch meeting, the agency asks a small group of people, company executives typically, to review, choose, modify, or reject the creative. There are no clients in this meeting. The people in this room are supposed to represent the customer that the creative is designed for. The people making these decisions may know their customers well, but this setting is designed to bring out our biases. The personal preferences of each executive drives confirmation bias. The emotion of past wins and past failures drives availability bias. The love of cool designs drives novelty bias. And the highest ranking executive in the room gets differential treatment. I'm not sure if there's an official deference bias, but there really should be. The pitch meeting is a tough time for the agency. Regardless of the research done, if the executives don't like the creative, it puts the relationship at risk. So the pitch meeting becomes about pleasing the client, not the client's customers. This is how failed campaigns get launched. This is how website redesigns reduce revenue for the business. And this is how agencies get canned for the decisions made by this small group of executives. The oppression of the pitch meeting can only be broken by the client. Uh, Or so I thought. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to predict the success of their marketing campaigns. Marketing magic is real, and I'll teach you how to harness it.
1: People have this lie that's been grained into their brain that, well, our target market doesn't read anymore. They don't read No, they don't read crap.
0: Garrett Marigut runs an agency called Directive and he's taking some unusual approaches towards his client relationships. Today on Intended Consequences, we'll learn how Garrett is using transparency, data, branding, and hard decisions to help shape the culture of his clients. He believes, as I do, that this is in the best interest of a client's customers, which will ultimately serve the brands we work with.
1: Right, so there's multiple people in every single department here with no accounts that do hiring, they do strategy, they do weekly one-on-ones with everyone in their department. Like these are all the things that build an environment that's fun to be in and successful and, and enjoyable. You know,
0: we've got this team of people that is well managed and motivated and properly sourced, and the goal still is to make fundamental changes. In the businesses that are your clients, so what are those things that you run into where the customers aren't helping you help them? To uh, steal a line, I guess, from Jerry Maguire,
1: I think they're always helping us. I don't want to say that you know the clients aren't helping us. I I think they're doing a lot of times everything in their power. I think where I think fundamental things that I hear a lot that are hard for people is number one, nobody likes content that they didn't write themselves. That's number one. So we actually don't sell a ton of content creation anymore, even though we were paying hundreds of dollars per article and we were doing it right. Even when other people write for me, I'm like, it's it's a great post. I just wanted to send it that way, right? Like it's very hard. Like one of the most difficult things in agency life is to create content, especially as an organic agency. So we, we support mostly now larger in-house teams. They have a lot of content people internally and we're helping them strategize, create better kind of fundamentals, better guidelines for every net new piece and why each will be successful with the research and the standards and the imagery and internally linking all of that.
0: I'm so glad you put that on the table because you, you really just crystallized for me what the problem is. Cause there was last year I stepped away and had other people writing for our blog, which is an important source of, of leads for us. And I, you know, I, I came to hate my own blog and it wasn't because it was poorly written and other people like, I love that article. I love this article. Uh, You really did galvanize it. And I think that's something that comes up when we start making recommendations. If we go down to the kind of the bottom of the funnel and let's say that your team has uh, done a test and found a nice win, you take it to the client and they're like, uh, either I would never do that or... I don't think we want to do that. I guess a classic example would be uh, we're going to put a um, we're going to put a pop up on this uh, on this page. Everybody's like, we hate pop ups. I hate pop ups. They always work statistically. They always almost always will generate more uh, higher performance for you. But the client's got to make a decision about brand. Talk a little bit about uh, situations where brand trumps performance.
1: Well, first off, brand always trumps performance. Okay. I'm a performance marketer who recognizes that if you're doing SEO, PPC, CRO, whatever the heck you're doing, if you're sending people to a website with a poor brand, good luck because everything is hindered by it, everything. Now, with that being said, people's brands aren't nearly as weak as they act like they are. They're not nearly as fragile as they act like they are. In other words, people are so worried about protecting their brand that they can't actually empower their brand. And so when you look at it from that of a a place of fear and a split, then you can start to understand where the client's coming from. And then you have to learn to make those suggestions within it. A huge one for SEO firms and even PPC firms, same thing. SEO firms is a lot of times trying to get an H1 approved. Like, you know, this H1 needs to have the keyword in it for proper on-page SEO, but they will never put that there because the product team, especially in SaaS, right? You have product teams that own products from, like the development roadmap, as well as the on-page SEO for that product page, right? And they'll never approve it because that's not in their copy. That's not in their brand guide. Yet, nobody knows what the hell their product does because they got so ingrained in what they're doing, right? So I always say that clarity wins, right? So anytime you're doing copy, clarity needs to come first. But that oftentimes isn't as catchy as whatever tagline the product
0: marketer came up with. Your brand is not as as fragile. fragile as you think yes. it is I, it's uh, hilarious. and yep. and empower your brand. I, I mean, a lot of the barriers that we run into are exactly people. They've set up these boundaries so that people don't abuse the brand, but it is that they're, they're taking the approach as if, oh my gosh, if anything changes, if anything goes out, that's wrong, then we're destroying goodwill with our customers. And so as a result, they don't, they don't empower the brand. That's, that's a beautiful vision. But we're guilty of it as agencies.
1: The reason we exist as an agency is because people can't necessarily hire us internally. Right? the day, we're a talent firm. We're connecting people with a problem to the talent that they couldn't either hire or manage internally. Okay? And what we do then is we have these really great training programs. We get these young, talented MBA students, uh, you know, double majors, graduating three years, these awesome young men and women, even older, experienced people who are transitioning fields. We bring them into our companies, and then we productize our deliverables. We say, here's your Asana checklist. You need to do this every week for the client, right? And what do we do? We raise our floor, but we think that our brand or our company or deliverable so fragile that we actually lower our ceiling. In other words, you create this productized deliverable, this agency that can quote unquote scale. But instead of creating a checklist that's asking the specialist questions, you're prescribing what to do in a universal way that actually lowers the ceiling for the quality of results you can get for a client. So you're so worried about your floor. You're so worried about doing bad work for the client that you accidentally lower the ceiling. I know we went through this at directive. And it's a crazy part of as you scale, right? You go from your initial 10, 12 people to 60 people. You start worrying, you're right? You systemize everything. You productize it all. You have SOPs. And then you lower your floor. And you wonder, hey, what about all that sexy, cool, crazy work we used to do? And you realize you're not allowing people to do that because you've productized and you've created a fragile environment that says we're scared of failure instead of saying, We're scared that we're not going to knock it out of the park. It's just a perspective thing. And we're guilty of it too as agencies.
0: It's a great model though. One of the things that we tend to run across when we work with a client and they've got a a full service agency, uh, we see it less and less with the, the search oriented or the advertising agencies. But essentially the agencies have been trained over time to deliver what will be accepted by the client. And so when we come in and we start introducing data that shows that maybe some of the decisions the client made or uh, aren't performing, uh, is, that, is that scenario that you see with, with your clients? The big thing with data is you
1: got to be okay when you fail because you're tracking everything, right? So you got to set the relationship up with the client that it's okay to fail. And honestly, some clients have environments where their upper management don't let them fail. And so they hate your suggestions and they fire you because they have to play it safe.
0: And so as an agency or an internal team uh, in that environment, you really do want to deliver something that that executive team is going to like and approve.
1: Yeah. But, or you got to be okay losing clients if they just don't fit. Like for us, you know, I started this thing because I wanted to do great work. If I don't feel like we're doing great work for somebody, I really don't want to take their money in all honesty. Like I'd rather go broke than do shit work. Pardon part of my French, but I'd rather just not be a part of it. It hurts. It hurts doing bad work for people. It hurts taking people's money when you can't execute. It's not fun, you know, it, and I wish more people would do that in our agency world because it would be more honest. It would be more transparent, It'd be more right. It, and it would, it would be easier to get into, into hiring agencies. It'd be easier to work with agencies if agencies were just like more transparent around what they don't do instead of saying yes. I think the number one problem with agencies is they can't say yes too much. They need to say no more.
0: And it's easier to say no with data. No, you
1: have to you, you gotta be able to support it, right? You can't just be a guy with a bunch of opinions. Nobody wants a consultant with a bunch of opinions. They want a, someone with a lot of perspective. And that perspective needs to be grounded in something factual in your you know point data.
0: So we've often wondered what it would be like if we added traffic generation to our our portfolio. Because what could be better than managing both sides of the conversion rate equation? Where you're you're optimizing not just the number of conversions from the traffic you're getting, but also the quality of the traffic. You're in that position. But one of the things that, that comes up, and I want to take an opportunity to ask you about it, is percent of spend in the paid search space versus flat rate. Do you have an opinion? And I'm curious to know how you guys feel. So let
1: me create a little story for you. And I'll tell you exactly why percentage of spend is the worst thing in the history of advertising. The worst thing. Okay. There's nothing that's more damaging to a client than percentage of ad spend. Nothing and here's why. You sign a client, okay? And they have in your contract, let's say a minimum ad spend required or a projected ad spend, or you have their budget, okay? And they want to spend $70,000 in month one. You're charging them anywhere between 15 to 10 to 20%, let's say, depending on if you're doing all the creative for it, if you have a full CRO department, whatever that is, right? And you close the client and you give them on a the kickoff call to Susie. Susie and Janelle and Susie and Janelle look at the account and they start freaking out. They're like, oh my God, look at all this wasted spend. I could drop this customer's cost per acquisition by 50% in the first day. They're so excited, right? They come to my office, Susie, Janelle, they're like, Garrett, they're showing me all the data, all the stuff. And they go, we can't wait. We're going to be able to cut their spend down to $45,000 a month or $35,000 a month, half the spend. And I go, great, Susie and Janelle, let me cut your salaries in half. That's the problem. Because there's a lie in advertising that, and this is what every client says, they can't help themselves, not, not every client, let's say 75% of clients, they say, look, we want to start small, but once we start to see results, once we've got some ROI, we got no problem spending more. Now, the history is in five years, I have less than five clients who actually have flexible budgets who spent more when we gave them ROI. The reality is, is advertisers do not need to scale. Advertisers need to become efficient. They need to look at opportunities, deals, and revenue Not cost per conversion, not cost per click, not cost per impression. They need to look at cost per opportunity, cost per deal, cost per revenue. They need to tie it to their CRM. That's all that matters. And they need to be efficient because businesses run on cash. They need to take the cash they're advertising and turn that into more cash. Not an LTV model, not an average order model. They need to actually generate cash, and they need to be more efficient. And that's the difference between directives. We want to focus on efficiency and then get to scale because the reality is is 90% of people never can scale their ads, but they sure as heck can be more efficient.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because that was my intuition as well. It did not align the goals of the agency and the goals of the client accordingly. Right? Like if you're the agency, you don't want to lose money. Like
1: I get that. But you also don't want to give horrible recommendations. Right? You don't want like the number one thing we see is people have to try to hit a spend so they throw it in display. I can say across 70 accounts in my current SQL database that display has the highest cost per acquisition of any channel and is the worst waste of money you could possibly spend it on outside of retargeting.
0: Even even for brand
1: building and awareness? No. Here's the only way we've been able to make it successful. We do what we call specific placement display. So we do a share of SERP audit. So we take every one of the keywords in their search terms report that's generated them actual revenue. Then you do an audit of all those search terms. You find every result in the top five for that term that's running GDN. Then you build out a specific display ad that says, if someone's reading this, would they actually be interested in our product or services? And then you build creative around specific experiences with high volume that have historically proven to generate revenue and then display can kick ass without that using in-market audiences, trying to use psychographics and all these things. Google is just burning cash for you and it's not going to turn into things.
0: That's a great strategy for display. We've seen clients turn off display, and actually it became harder to, co- to uh, convert people on the site. So we know that there is some ethereal value in these situations that it might be providing, um, but we've not been able to uh, itemize.
1: One of the first things we do is we try to have clients stop spending on their brand name. We had one client that was spending a quarter million dollars. And so we went on their brand every quarter. They were spending $250,000 every quarter. And so we went to the CMO and we said, could we run an experiment? Now you're going to have to trust us. But we want to take that 250 grand and go after net new users, people who don't already know your brand name, people who are looking for your solution. We want to position you there. And we're going to test it all. We're going to look at direct traffic and all those metrics. And we found a 2% dip from 250 grand when we turned off the, the brand search ads. That was it. And then by the way, we grew their pipeline by hundreds of percentiles because we took all that money and just spent it on new customer acquisition.
0: That's the value of an optimized traffic flow. It's also the value of an optimized conversion plan. You get to take that reduced acquisition cost and pump it back in. I wanted to um, ask you this question. So I'm a marketer. My company is in a a relationship with a paid search company that is percent of spend. How do I go about negotiating something different? Do I have to switch agencies, which is terrifying? Or is there a changing wind in the market?
1: Take whatever you've been spending on them and say, hey, guys, I don't keep paying you that, but it's not going to be on a percentage of spend. I want you to lower my spend. I'm going to keep paying you the same amount. Save me money, right? It doesn't have to be that. It can be. The funny part is it doesn't have to be zero sum. Like they can win and you can win. Like someone doesn't have to get screwed. That's the best part, you know? So just take whatever you've been paying them. Say, look, I'm going to keep paying you that, but I don't want you to. I want you to lower my cost per acquisition by 25%. And I think you could do it if you weren't worried about your retainer drop it. And I bet you they could. I love that. That's,
0: that's so easy
1: yeah, they take your average position from 1.2. They lower it to 2.7. You save whatever that percentile is right there automatically.
0: Perfect answer. So when a marketer, um, their SEO firm or their PPC firm comes to them and says, here's the landing pages that uh, we designed for you. What should a marketer say in, term, in terms of proof to me that, this is, that these are the right landing pages?
1: Well, most don't, by the way, Brian. So most agencies actually aren't even doing custom landing pages for their ad campaigns. And that's why they're doing a percentage of spend. They're just scaling up like crazy, running these campaigns on autopilot with like a third party software, like Optimizer. And they're just essentially saying, as long as we make our clients discoverable, that's our job. They're not saying we have to generate opportunities, deals, and revenue, and then correlating their ads and their landing pages into their marketing CRM and into their sales CRM. I'd say only 10% or less are actually even doing that in search right now.
0: That's been our experience as well. Again, I'm kind of looking from the outside, but every one of those firms has the word conversion on their website. We offer conversion. Oh, they love the word. What do you say to to a marketer that is like, uh, that that sees what you're presenting to them and she says, yeah, my boss didn't like it. Can you change this, change that and the other? What could they ask for to kind of turn the tables on that and go back to their boss with, well, here's why we did this.
1: Well, I'll build out full projections. Like I build a whole like 24 month projection model based on their current data so I can project the success of working with us. So that's really cool. We also don't work with clients who take away parts of our deliverable that I make us unsuccessful. So if the client only wants to use us for something that I don't think will work, I won't take their money.
0: That's gotta generate some pretty interesting conversations.
1: Well, yeah, I'll let them know. I'm like, hey, look, we won't run your ads if we can't control the landing pages. I guarantee it won't work and you won't get the results you're paying us for. And they'll be like, really? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm okay losing money and I'll eat the margin to do it right. Do you still wanna work with us? And they're like, hell yeah, we wanna work with you. Nobody else told us that. Like who wants to work with people who want, like if, if you're only working with clients for the money, I mean, it's not that hard to take the client from you because there's some people out there who actually care about the work, you know, and that's a much more powerful place to be.
0: So what's, uh, what's one skill that you wish more of your clients, the, the marketers that you work with day in, day out on, on the customer side, what's one skill you wish they had, more of them had? Copy, hands down. Really? People have this
1: lie that's been grained into their brain that, well, our target market doesn't read anymore. They don't read. No, they don't read crap. They don't read bad stuff.
0: But you know, there's this
1: lie. This is like our clients don't read longer articles. We watched the scroll depth and we saw in you know, this tool that people are bouncing after 42%. I'm like, well, yeah. Would you read that
0: post? <laughs>
1: and then they go read it. They're like, no. I'm like, well, then is it that people don't read it? Do they don't read crap? Because remember, there's zero barrier to entry to copy. Anyone can write it. Anyone can say anything on the internet. The question is, is what you're saying better than everyone else? And if it's not, then you're right. They won't read it because they don't have to. You aren't in control of information anymore. They are. And the number one skill that I think can completely change your business is how you communicate and position it. And copy is one of the most important things in the world to do that. And I wish more marketers read Ogilvy on advertising and actually went through how it used to be, which was copy, copy, copy. Because copy truly can change your campaigns.
0: I would totally agree. If I hear one more presentation where I hear about the attention span of a goldfish, I'm going to start throwing things. Have you have you heard this analogy? I don't buy into the eight seconds, uh, the five seconds, whatever the uh, the zeitgeist of the attention span of a visitor is. So I'm really glad to hear you say that. I think true copy. I mean, it stands out. It's creative. Like you won't
1: get a lemon. Like there's such good copy out there that like stands the test of time. And then if like people read, that's how they learn. Like that is, that is literally our whole entire society is based on that. And then we've devalued it as marketers. Like I could almost guarantee like my own agency, we don't have enough copywriters. In fact, we have to tell people, like we have to have people go through copywriting training and it's hard to get it. Like people don't value copy. Like clients don't, they don't want to pay for it. Agencies don't, they don't want to deliver it. Copy is truly important. Real copywriters Oh my gosh, I had never been that thorough in my GA. I had never done that many customer interviews. Like real copywriters can completely change your business. We generated seven opportunities somehow from our website. We're normally at like 50. It's horrible opportunity creation. But we've already closed 11 deals this month off of seven opportunities. It's insane. By copy and positioning, you can speak exactly to your ideal customer and the best thing you can do to grow your business is improve your close rate, not your volume. And if you can do that, I mean, it's such a it's such a powerful place to be.
0: This may not be particularly relevant, but I always like to ask about the, the stack, the ideal stack in the case of an agency. When you hear a client has this, 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 and this, what makes you the most happy? What do you think is the, the, the most helpful stack for a marketer today in the B2B
1: space? My favorite stack is the client's running... Has a marketing ops person internally who's managing their Marketo, their Pardot, their HubSpot instance. They have a world-class sales development team that they're struggling to see if they want to pay us on the search side to generate leads or if they want to keep using their SDR team. I love that. So the SDR team is usually running on an outreach.io integration straight to Salesforce with a bidirectional sync. And then we're sending everything from our custom landing pages and from their website into their Marketo. It's getting scored. So we're generating MQLs. Those MQLs are going to opportunities, like to the SDR team to turn into opportunities. It's all going then to an account executive in Salesforce. If I hear a client's got, you know, that going on, I mean, my job's easy. We can do our thing all day. So, you know, great marketing CRM, world-class sales development team, great, you know, sales setup. It's not because for us, it's like, cool, we generated you leads. Did you turn it? Because if I don't make the client more than they're paying me, they're going to fire us. It's not rocket science.
0: Any resources for a marketer if they want to start ex- exp- uh, exploring how to build a stack like that? I wouldn't overthink it. Just go.
1: You can use BuiltWith. Take your favorite marketing team. say so you're like, wow, those people do amazing marketing. Use BuiltWith.com. Put their domain in there. See what tools they're using and just copy them. You don't have to be an innovator. You just got to be better at executing.
0: There will be a moment that first reshapes the pitch meeting dynamic for you. For me, it was when an agency gave me three mock-ups of a new design and asked me to choose the one I wanted to proceed with. I said, I don't know, go collect some data and tell me which one I should pick. When you get back to the office, try a little experiment. Pull up some of the creative that your agency or your internal team has delivered, and instead of considering what you think of it, ask yourself, how could the agency collect some data to help us make this better? If you listen to this podcast, you'll be familiar with several of the tools that can be used. But why not get the agency to do it? In your next agency meeting, ask the question, how could we collect some data that helps us get this right? Their response may be unsatisfying at first, but you've taken the first step toward changing their focus from your preferences back to your customers' preferences. Repeat after me. Go get us some data that will tell us what will work. They'll probably call me, and that's okay, too. All right, scientists, that's it for this week.